You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Wealth Tech on Deck. As our listeners know, I've been around a while, and if I'm honest, I'm not drawn to too many conferences these days, too much of the same old, same old. The only must-see for me are the two Tiburon CEO Summits Chip Rome hosts each year. This spring's Tiburon CEO Summit, by the time you have heard this, will have taken place in Boston, May 1 through 3, and we'll have uh, some 330 C-suite level executives in attendance, including my life field colleagues and myself. The Tiburon CEO Summits are a who's who of leaders driving our industry forward. And today we are fortunate to talk with Chip Rome, who is the founder and managing partner of Tiburon uh, Strategic Advisors and Tiburon CEO Summits. Chip also sits on many wealth and asset management, annuity and fintech boards and has as good a vantage point on where our industry is headed as anyone I know. So Chip, welcome back to Wealth Tech on Deck. Great. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be back. So, Chip, uh, when we're recording this, it's before the conference, and you've been kind enough to share what you will be sharing with your our colleagues at the conference. So, uh, my favorite uh, part of the show, and the, the whole thing is great, but uh, my favorite is when you do the State of the Industry Address, and that's the highlight, uh, always highlight for me, and I think for most, highlight of each Tiburon CEO Summit. So, what are some of the key themes you'll highlight uh, in the upcoming, and by the time we uh, our listeners are listening to it, what you have shared at the uh, at the summit? Yep, sure, Jack. So for my Tiburon keynote next week, I will really emphasize five themes. I'll get them all out there for you. How target markets are evolving, who we're going after, who we're trying to serve, how offerings, meaning products and services are evolving, how the channels are evolving, distribution channels are evolving, how the tactics are evolving, and then how the industry structure unto itself is evolving. So within reason, those big five themes will be the structure of my thoughts. So let's dig in. Why don't you start with whichever one you want to start with? I'm sure there's a, probably a bit of a sequence to it all, or maybe it's all just one part of a mass of things, but please tell. Sure. Yep. I think in some ways they kind of, they feed each other, but let's just do them in the order I set them in then. So, so I think the first is the evolving markets. I think the big shifts going on that I think industry players need to pay attention to. One is that the mass affluent market has become larger than the high net worth market. And I think that gets overlooked. That's one. Two is that the Gen X market is the fastest growing market in generations. And three, women, especially and to some degree minorities, are getting much more wealth. And so I think those are three fundamentally evolving, changing things about the target markets that industry players serve. And what we'll do, uh, we give the five, why don't you go through them in a little more depth like you're doing now, and then we'll talk about how they all come together because they all relate and impact one another. So what about the second one? Okay. Yeah. So the second one is evolving offerings, meaning products and services that are being offered. Everyone knows the industry's moved to managed accounts, that exchange-traded funds have the highest flows by far. There's a lot of buzz about direct indexing or personalized indexing. There's a lot of buzz about ESG or sustainable investing, a lot of buzz about alternatives. Collectively, none of those products have very big flows. So I think there's a lot of journalism written about them, a lot of conference presentations. <laughs> but if you actually look at the flows of ESG, direct indexing, and ALTS, none of the flows are all that high. So I just want to call that out. Yeah. You know, this is what I love about the conference. Not only that you kind of cut to the chase and tell the truth, which is called just facts and figures and data and so on. But I actually said to a colleague as we were sitting there at your last conference, because you had a similar observation at that point, these sort of specialty products of direct indexing, ESG, et cetera, that they had not really 
done much in the marketplace relative to expectations. And I said, wait till the next Tiburon CEO summit. He's going to say the same thing, I bet. Uh, that, that was my prediction. Yep, I think you're right. I mean, basic facts, again, you can use this, but like, you know, basic facts, ETF flows in, in 2021 were the highest, year 2021, they're about 900 billion. Last year, 2022, with everything going on, we're about 600 billion. Then you look at the flows, of, you know, direct indexing flows are 80, 80. You know, ESG flows last year are 3 billion, three. We talk about these things more than the data suggests we should talk about them. And to give context, uh, Chip, when you say 3 billion out of, what's the, the total market? What are the total flows? It's 0.000 something. It's about 1.5 trillion per year. Net flows into any type of wealth management industry, about one and a half trillion per year. So 3 billion right. doesn't even, doesn't, it doesn't deserve a decimal point, you know? So it's, it's tiny. The same with direct indexing. What's the percentage? I can't do my math quick here. 80 out of 1,500. You know, think of it that way. 80 billion out of 1,500 billion or 1.5 trillion. Yep. So tiny. Yep. yep. Tiny. So interesting. Interesting. I think that's what's going on in the offerings area. In the channel area, I think the big aha for Tiburon right now is the dominance of Fidelity, Schwab, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard. Those four firms have flows that dwarf every other firm's flows. And for some reason, again, doesn't seem like wealth and investment management industry players are recognizing that, that they each have, and I could quote 2021's data or 2022's data, those four firms at the top of the leaderboard, both years, Schwab, it's in order, it's Fidelity, Schwab, Morgan Stanley, Vanguard. Those four firms have the highest flows, hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Remember, the industry flows are about one and a half trillion. Each of those is in hundreds of billions, and other firms are have negative flows or have flows of five or ten billion. These firms have hundreds of billions of dollars, and we're just not calling that out loud enough. We're not studying Fidelity, Schwab, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard. They're doing everything right right now. We should be spending more time figuring that out. Well, if we could pause and just dwell on this for a little bit, because as you know, we you and I have talked about this. I'm most interested because what stands out as prominent is that Morgan Stanley is the odd. Uh, firm in that list. Of course, you would expect Schwab Fidelity and Vanguard to be in the top three, but there's that third firm called Morgan Stanley. How did they get there? What's your assessment? What did, what's going on there that they're so prominent? And you mentioned other firms are actually in the negative category. So I think the big aha for me is that the business models of Schwab, Fidelity, Morgan Stanley increasingly look a lot alike. If you think about like history, you know, Fidelity was the grandfather in the workplace world, you know, big defined contribution plan administrator. And then here comes Morgan Stanley buying Solium Capital, buying E-Trade, both of which were big stock option plan processors. So it's not 401k, it's stock options, but it's the workplace is what it is. It's how do I get leads out of the workplace? And then double that down with Morgan Stanley's purchase of the retail portion of E-Trade, which gets you leads coming out of a discount brokerage arm. Again, think about it. It's the same as Schwab having a retail presence and sending advisor referrals off to independent RIAs, right? Morgan Stanley can have E-Trade you know, call centers and send those leads off to Morgan Stanley brokers. So I just think if you really step back and forget about all the industry lines that we drew, uh, at the end of the day, Schwab, Fidelity, and Morgan Stanley are looking a lot more alike than they are different. And I think that's a that's a good thing. And they're, at, and they're at the top of the damn leaderboard. Let's put it in perspective. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. So tell us, what about number four? Yeah, so number four, I think tactics, the two big tactics that we're paying a lot of attention to, one is marketing and lead gen, and the other is technology. Uh, so on the marketing and lead gen, 
you know, the old methods of, you know, custodian referrals or seminars at the local Holiday Inn or direct mail or community networking, you know, or professional referrals from CPAs. These models have died. These models are not scalable, right? And the scalable models appear to be paid lead gen. So the firms like Smart Asset and Zoe Financial that are selling leads, that's working for a lot of advisors. Digital marketing of all forms, branded search, unbranded search, SEO, advertising, every every type of digital marketing. And then the workplace, as I was referring to earlier. You know, if you think about the workplace strategy even more broadly, You'd argue that Fidelity has been there a long time. Edelman Financial Engines would be a managed account player in that space. Cap Trust is a small plan administrator. You saw creative planning go by Lockton. You know, you've seen numerous firms push into the workplace. So it seems like to me, to me, Jack, the three marketing and lead gen strategies that are working are paid lead gen, digital, and workplace. And those are scalable, unlike traditional mm-hmm. seminars and other things like that that just are not scalable. So that's what's going on in marketing and legion. Gotcha. gotcha. And it's working. Yeah, it's working. And those and look at the firms that are at the top of the leaderboard. We need to move away from our opinions sometimes and look at the data, right? Schwab, Fidelity, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard are getting the flow. What are they doing is the question. Not what do I think or what, what pontification do I have to offer? I'm interested in what they're doing because they're getting the flows right now. Let me ask you about that. I'm curious because, you know, you for sure, I try to do the same. I try to follow what's going on in the press. And what I read and what I sort of feel by talking to people is they're sort of at odds. I use direct index. You, you, actually, we had Matt Belknap from Cerulean a week or so ago, and they were saying, said, I think everything's been said about direct indexing that can be said. <laughs> so he was just making the observation. You know, they do research. He said, it's been said. Is there's, you know, basically there's not much more to be said. Curious your opinion, Ike. What is it that has the press, the people that are promoting, I can guess this, what this is all about, but I'm curious your opinion, that we read all this stuff that it's, it seems like kind of BS. It's like over, yeah. overdone. Like direct index is great, but it's not, it's not the end all be all. So uh, help me understand that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily pick on direct index. I think it happens with every trend. Everyone gets sure, so sure. excited about new trends and they dismiss yeah. the traditional products very quickly, think they're going to take over the world, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but, I mean, direct indexing is an interesting thing. Let's be clear. It's an interesting sure. thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's totally. some pros to like, you know, tax optimization and, and customization. But let's be clear. You also end up with a brokerage statement that you own 9,000 holding. It's a horrible experience. And no one seems to want to talk mm-hmm. about that. Right. Yeah. Do I really need my account customized if I then have a huge tax headache every year? You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. You know people like to <laughs> sensationalize new trends. I get it. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. 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 I'm kind of, I'm kind of that. The independence broker or whatever you want to call me, you know, like I, I just I just look at the data. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to convince someone of any yeah. story. I'm trying to look at the data and convince everyone what the data is saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Actually, one of the many reasons I enjoy your conference so much, the summit so much, is uh, BS is left at the door. Except some of it goes on in the hallway. I've, I've noticed. I've, I've been the <laughs> maker of some of that. So tell us more. The other big tactical one worth paying attention to is the technology evolution. So on the on the client facing side, you have personalization, you have AI, artificial intelligence, and you have virtual delivery. All very important trends changing how the world works. We at Tiburon believe what today roughly people call hybrid digital advisors. So you know the Fidelity or Vanguard or Schwab offerings, or Betterment has one of these offerings where you you do have access to a human 
plus most of it's virtual, right? Mm-hmm. I think those offerings are the ones that are working right now. And those firms right. have very big flow. So if you can personalize it, use AI, deliver virtually, Facet Wealth is cleaning up in that space, you know, just kind of, there, there's some really good growth stories in that. And then there's the yeah. back end of technology where you're just seeing these platforms get so big. So whether it's Orion or InvestNet or InvestCloud or Adapar or whoever your favorite platform is, you know, they, every time there's a new cool financial planning software or CRM software, one of those platforms snaps it up, you know? And so you end up with these very, very large platforms that most advisors and wealth managers will run on some platform at some point. Sure. So do we hit all five or do we have one more to go? Uh, that was 4B. And then number five is the evolving industry structure. And what we mean okay. by that, we really think about three things. We think about where the venture capital is flowing. We think about where the M&A is happening. And we think about whether any IPOs are happening. So uh-huh. taking those in that order, venture capital is pretty quiet these days. The venture capital that is happening is going to wealth tech right now. So still mm-hmm. interesting. You know, the big raises were traditionally the online advice firms or robo advisors and the online brokerage firms like Robinhood. So the B2C stuff was working before. Now more the B2B stuff is working, you know, mm-hmm. advisor tech product. Sure. That's where the venture dollars are going. The M&A is happening both in the wealth tech sector, as I was saying, like the Orions and Investnet's buying up everyone, and then also in the RIA segment, about 850 transactions last year in the RIA segment. So a lot of activity there. Then there is no IPO activity. IPO market's pretty quiet right now. Yeah. Everyone knows CI Financial's trying to spin off their U.S. business as an IPO. You know, Theoretically, some of these big RIAs could go public down the way. So you know, theoretically, some of the wealth tech companies could go public. You know, we're watching Focus go private right now. You know, so it's not necessarily sure that everyone wants to be a public company. So IPO, not a lot of activity, but you could theoretically see some IPO activity. But certainly there's a lot of M&A activity in both wealth tech and RIAs. One of the things you said at the last summit, which I've quoted in many of the articles I've written and in, on in, in podcasts, it said uh, you said at the last conference when we were together, if you're not maximizing retirement income and addressing taxes, Social Security and health care, what are you doing? That's what investors want. And one of the things that you mentioned platforms a little bit earlier, one of the things that we see happening across the board is that firms are going really trying to add value to the platform to manage such things as taxes and risk and Social Security and healthcare isn't part of that just yet, but that's a bit more complex and probably a little further down the road. But certainly it's coming together in the form of a platformization, a term I've just made up. But the idea is to have the platform really be multifaceted in terms of supporting the advisor. And it looks to me anyway, and I'd love your thoughts on this, that the big RIAs can either build it themselves or lease it, rent it from the big ones like Orion and Investnet, et cetera. What's your take on that? You still hold true that if you're not maximizing retirement income, et cetera, addressing taxes and so on, is it a platform thing? And is that a trend? What do you see in terms of that platformization I just mentioned? I think it's definitely a trend. So the way, the way I think about it very deliberately, Jack, is that if you're serving the mass affluent market, then the issues are retirement income and healthcare. It's help them survive in retirement. That's what you're doing, right? If you're serving the mass affluent. If you're serving the high net worth market, they don't really have that same issue. They have more a diversification and legacy issue. So it's more about, you know, taxes, alts, you know, and estate planning. So depending on which market you're serving, I could say there's slightly different platforms. Uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, this is a technology sale. It's going to be all these things will be delivered through technology. It is a platform. And one of the things that we see, that it's one thing to say, oh, it's all going to be 
connected, integrated, and so on. But one of the things that's often missed, and I have this conversation with C-suite execs all the time, and that is it's one thing to say it should be coordinated. It's quite different to actually do it. A lot of the work has been done over the past many years around data flow, just so the data is consistent. But when you're coordinating risk and tax and you're coordinating social security and you're coordinating, you know, integrating with uh, what to do about Roth conversions and RMDs and all the stuff you got to factor to get at that retirement paycheck or to deal with taxes, depending on where you are in the spectrum. What's your take on that? Do you see that? Is that something that you follow? I, my observation is that firms are still trying to figure out and largely are still early on in the learning curve. Yeah, I think they're early on. It's interesting that this got no attention for a couple of decades. You know, we all lived in the accumulation world for a couple of decades here, and now we're living in the decumulation world. And I think that's putting the attention on this. So I don't think they're insurmountable problems. To me, these are technology solves. You know, it just takes time. It just it's kind of a relatively new issue to the industry. And you know, right, you're getting right. people focused on it as baby boomers are aging and now heading into retirement. Now it becomes the decumulation phase and you need to build the technology for that. So I, I don't see them as insurmountable problems. I see them as newer problems. So what else haven't we covered that you want to make sure our audience is aware of? Because you have a real good sense of what, where we are now and where we're going. What else is on your mind as you will have spoken to your uh, colleagues at the uh, Tiburon CEO Summit? So I'm probably 90% done with my slides for next week at Tiburon. I'd say the big three ahas for me, one is the dominance of Fidelity, Schwab, Morgan Stanley, and Vanguard, and spend, why we don't spend more time analyzing literally everything they do because they have all the flows, right? That's one. Number two is who's winning in marketing and lead gen. And, you know, some firms are really cleaning up in this paid lead, you know, lead gen. Some are cleaning up in digital. Some are cleaning up in workplace, you know. So I just think listening to people babble about professional referrals or community networking or whatever just are not leverageable, scalable strategies. And the third is hybrid delivery. If you look at the flows, these hybrid firms are getting more flows. So I think the Tiburon data says that hybrid advisors, meaning like the, uh, as I said, Vanguard with a person on the phone or Fidelity with a person on the phone or Betterment with a person on the computer, uh, that hybrid delivery is about 2% of advisors getting about 22% of flows. So that hybrid thing is working right now and we're not talking about it enough. So I think that COVID has kind of ruined or ruins the wrong word. COVID has lessened the need for local proximity. You know, I just think now your advisor can be anywhere and you can work on Zoom and that's perfectly fine. That Mm -hmm. changes the game quite a bit. And I think uh, we're going to see this flow through the industry data over the next five or 10 years. Yeah. One of the things before we uh, look to sign off here, one of you for our audience that may not be familiar with sort of the broad outlines of what you do at the CEO Summit might be useful just for people to understand that various speakers, topics, maybe just a flow, you don't, not, not necessarily by detail, but just, you know, what, what's covered there. I, I could do it, but you can do it better, certainly in terms of kind of people who are doing the talking and then what takes place is also a healthy dose of breaks, which I find to be the most useful because you have some great conversations, but maybe share with our audience what the CEO Summit looks like. Here's a 60 second pitch, what it looks like. So at the end of the day, Tiburon focuses on the wealth and investment management markets. That's what we believe we're addressing. Big part of that is wealth tech these days. Tiburon Summit is two days long. We do it twice a year. It's really made up of my keynote presentation. We give out the Tiburon Awards. So like Bill McNabb, who was a CEO of Vanguard for a long time, will be back as a prior award winner this time. Have a little fireside chat with him. We have some Tiburon talks that are kind of akin to TED Talks. So we'll have McKinsey partners or government regulators or people like that in for 15, 20 minutes. And then we have 14 panels 
of five CEOs each with a facilitator. And so we have 60 CEOs on the stage every time. Speakers are only allowed to come back once every two years. So it keeps all the content fresh. There's always new speakers up there. Very difficult job for me is finding 60 new CEOs every six months when I can't use the 240 that I just used over the last two years. So it's a high-powered group of senior executives focused on wealth and investment management. And and I believe a lot of the important networking happens in the hallways. I I believe the sessions drive the conversations, but I think a lot of high-level meetings happen at Tiburon. I'd say a lot of M&A activity goes back to Tiburon hallway conversations. So that's kind of Tiburon makeup. Do, do, Do it twice a year. Yeah, I can underscore that. I actually was involved with another organization we were talking about. It was during the height of COVID where we couldn't get together. I actually referred to a segment that they offered called Hallway Conversations. We did it virtually, but that has always been the most important part of any conference. And certainly the CEO Summit is is at the top of the list is the Hallway Conversations. And many of which I was not expecting, many of which I frankly plan, want to make sure that I talk to certain people and certain people want to talk to me. It's all part of the deal. But a lot of them are just surprised. Is like, oh, really? You do that? Oh, I didn't know you do that. You know, it's just one of those kind of conversations you've heard of one another, but didn't fully understand what it was they do or how they did it and where there might be a fit. So I found them to be enormously valuable in terms of business opportunities going both ways. Yep. You know, the beginning at Tibra, I don't know if you know, it was, it was two thoughts that I had. One was that I had met a lot of industry CEOs that were in different channels or different ways uh, in, that I hadn't been in. I had been a Schwab executive and, you know, I knew discount brokerage and mutual fund supermarkets and RIAs. And then I'd meet some person who runs an insurance producer group. I'm like, oh, my God, I've never heard of you. you know. And at the end of the day, they're thinking about all the same issues you are. And it's just yes, yes. putting those eclectic group of CEOs who do different things but you're kind of focused on the same wealth and investment management industry, but you come at it from different angles, putting them in the same room together. So that was the beginning of Tiburon was every conference I spoke at was, you know, all mutual fund people or all annuity people or all broker dealer people or whatever. And all they do is repeat the same things to each other over time. Yep. Whereas Tiburon yep. shakes that up. You, you talk to a lady or a man who does something quite different than you and it's going quite well. And you say, wow, yep. OK, I can learn from them. That was the beginning of Tiburon. It seems it's, I, I like that. It's humble. Yeah, it must have been osmosis because I didn't do this directly. But when we started this podcast, it, we've kind of become a, a sort of a virtual, I don't want to say we were a virtual version of Tiburon. Tiburon is its own thing. And something I'm, you know, I'm wholly committed to attending two times a year because I think it's so important. By virtue of the fact that we have conversations with CEOs about what they're doing and then other CEOs or C-suite level folks listen in, it's kind of become a bit of the town square where you get to talk about what you're interested in and then you get to hear about what you're your peers, your your competitors, your colleagues are talking about. It's really been fascinating. And as uh, Riley Etheridge, a good friend who's at uh, Capital Group these days, said to me, said, I can't believe your guests share everything, like their strategy so openly. I said, really what it comes down to, people love to talk about what they're passionate about, which is what they're doing and why they're doing it and how it's working. And I know I, I've been the beneficiary of those hallway conversations where people are talking about just that. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Chip, it's been a real pleasure to spend this time with you, as always. And by the time this comes up, we'll have spent a little bit of time uh, last week, if you will, talking about what's going on in the world. So one of my favorite questions is, and you have a fascinating life you were just sharing before we went on air. What do you do outside of work that you're excited or passionate about and people might find interesting or surprising? Uh, so I thought about this one ahead of time, Jack, because last time you had me on, I think I talked about the Tiburon Impact Adventures where we built houses in Mexico. Right. And the Skip and Chip Excellent Adventures with my buddy Skip Schweiss, where we started an outdoors hiking group or whatever. So I figured I couldn't repeat those. So 
I tried to think of something yep. else interesting. So something I do is I spend four months a year outside the U.S., two months over the Christmas holidays down in Australia, and then two months every summer at a new location in Europe. So when we're recording this, I just come back from Australia a couple of weeks ago, missed all the rain in California this winter, came back to a beautiful spring here. And just after a week after Tiburon here, we will move to the Amalfi Coast in Italy for uh, two months for the summer. So that's actually, to be honest with you, it's more like 10 weeks. So yeah, kind of two 10-weekers, two and a half months each, twice a year. So try to spend some time just living life. Yeah, smart. Very smart. I'm envious. So, Chip, thanks. This has been uh, great. Love to uh, get your thoughts and perspective on it all for our audience. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Chip, again, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Jack. Glad to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.